Welcome to Tonebender's Sound Bites, the mini version of the Sound Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Hey, everybody, this is Tim Muirhead. I will be your host for today. Renee will not be with us for this episode. This episode is going to be a bit of a departure for Tonebenders because we're not interviewing anyone and we're not really doing any experiments, but I want to take you on a little stroll down memory lane for myself, and it's going to lead us to a reading of A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. I thought I'd release this at this time of year because it's the holidays for most, and even if you don't celebrate Christmas, it's not really a religious thing. It's a cute poem. It's a beautiful poem. And it's read by Patrick Spence Thomas. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Patrick right now. When I graduated film school, I realized that I wanted to do sound for films, TV shows, everything along that gamut. And uh, I was lucky enough to land an internship with Patrick Spence Thomas and his son, Richard Spence Thomas, who is, they were in the process of transitioning the business from uh, father to son. Now, The Business is one of the oldest sound studios uh, in Canada, probably in North America, for all I know, the world. When I say sound studios, I mean independent sound studios. There were obviously uh, large corporations that had it, but at this time, in the 60s, there were very few independent sound studios where someone could take their movie and uh, get a sound mix done for it. Problems with having an independent sound studio at the time were there were no giant mixing boards that were mass-produced, so... Patrick had to build his own mixing console. He had to build his own booth. He had to build his own talkback systems. Uh, these weren't things that were being made in mass production at the time. So if you weren't a huge corporation, you simply made it yourself. One of my favorite stories about his uh, early mixing consoles that he built was uh, he put a knob on the top of the console that had absolutely nothing attached to it on the bottom, and the knob was labeled noise filter. The client would say that it had to be better, it had to be better, he would give them a grease pencil and let them play with that knob until they got it just right. And then he'd mark grease pencil on the top of the board. And then when they got to that part, he'd reach out and move that knob just to the perfect spot they'd marked. And oh, it was magic. They'd loved it every time. And meanwhile, that knob was attached to nothing and did absolutely nothing. Uh, it was a funny story he used to tell. So anyway, Patrick was uh, kind of my first mentor. When I started in the business in the mid-90s, he was kind of transitioning out of it. And he spent as much time uh, regaling the clients with stories and keeping everyone happy as he did actually behind a board. By that point, his son Richard had kind of fully transitioned to doing most of the actual sound work. But Patrick specialized in making sure everyone felt welcome at all times. And one of his signature moves was whenever someone new walked in the room, he said hello in this very thick British accent. Kind of, uh, I can't do it justice, but kind of a hello welcome. That's not at all his accent. I can't do accents, but it was just this overwhelmingly welcoming hello that he was famous for. So while I was new to the business, we would go out for lunch, Patrick and I, to this bar called The Vox. And it was between a bunch of different sound studios, deluxe, a uh, bunch of other ones. And when we would go into this bar, Patrick would walk in and it was like Norm walking in from Cheers. Everybody knew Patrick and everybody loved Patrick. And I would sit down at the bar with Patrick 
and everyone would come up one by one and pay their respects to Patrick and tell me stories of how he got them in the business and how they owe their career to him. And I was in good hands if I was with Patrick. And Patrick was uh, kind of an icon within the city of Toronto. And not just the city of Toronto, because when he started his studio... It was the only one in this whole area of the country. So if you were making a film in Detroit, if you were making a film in Buffalo, if you were making a film in Ohio, Cleveland, New York obviously had studios and probably Montreal did. But this kind of whole region of the country, if you were making a film, you came to Patrick Spence Thomas. He made lots of great documentaries. He made some uh, films that really kind of changed the way things work in Canada about a decade ago, uh, one of Canada's most famous prime ministers passed away, and the picture on the cover of one of our largest newspapers for the obituary had Patrick's hand holding a microphone. Just uh, His body was just off screen, but it was Patrick's hand holding the microphone interviewing, getting the sound for the prime minister during that time in this iconic moment. So Patrick was uh, a really important person to the sound industry in Canada and in this whole region of North America. But the funny thing is, is that the thing that he's kind of most known for is a film called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. And the reason that this film is known is it is often picked as the worst film ever made. And uh, Patrick had a lot of stories about this film. He thought it was also the worst film ever made. But one of the great things was as they were mixing it, it made no sense. It, he couldn't figure out what the director was trying to do. So Patrick, in the middle of the night while mixing it, decided to take things into his own hands and wrote a whole narration track for it to try and make things make sense because the visuals made no sense. And he just simply recorded the narration track himself as a guide, and it ended up in the movie. So Patrick's voice is in the movie. I'll play you a little clip of that right now. He circled around and back, surrounding her in his form. Gently he blew through her hair, her mind, and her dreams. For her seduction, he decided to create a bed unique for the occasion. He called to her knowing she had to come. He took a human form, except for his eyes, for a demon's eyes are always filled with blood. So as you can tell, there is a reason why that is on the list of many people's worst films ever made. It's essentially an unwatchable film, and because it's so unwatchable... It's actually been scanned and re-released in Blu-ray, and uh, it makes its way uh, through film festivals of the worst movies ever made, and it's kind of a joke, and it is fairly funny for what it is, but uh, Patrick is both extremely embarrassed and kind of proud of his role with that film. A secondary kind of postscript to that is that he never really got paid for doing the sound on that movie. It was made in the 70s. And in so somewhere around 2005, uh, when the film started getting picked up in all these festivals and then ended up getting a re-release, the director actually sent Patrick a check for uh, the work he did on it, you know, 35 years later. So it was kind of a nice postscript to that. But in addition to his voice appearing in Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, many of you may have Patrick's uh, dulcet tones in your own sound libraries. Through Sound Ideas, you can order a sound effects collection called Voice Box. And Patrick was one of the voices that they had come in and read things. So it's news reports and children's nursery rhymes and all these various different things. And you can hear Patrick's voice as one of the readers in that. So you might actually have him in your library. Little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, What a good boy am I? 
Patrick uh, sadly passed away in 2008, and uh, we all miss him greatly. But one of the things that he did bef- right before he passed, as his health was failing, he went into the studio and recorded a couple of his favorite stories. And one of them was A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. And this has now become kind of a tradition in my family. Every year on Christmas Eve, when we're lying our heads down to go to bed, we play this recording of Patrick telling this story. And it often leads to uh, good dreams and leads into, you know, one of the best days of the year with Christmas and the kids and all that. So I just thought that maybe it might be nice for me to pass on this little tradition to you guys. So if you guys want to take a listen to Patrick Spence Thomas reading A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas... It's kind of got a special place in my heart. And uh, although this isn't necessarily, you know, a sound design related thing, this is kind of a sound design icon for Canada, for uh, this part of North America. So Americans included. And uh, he's also just got a great voice. He was an extremely awesome person. And this is one way that I kind of try and remember him and honor his memory by listening to this and making it part of my holiday tradition. So again, feel free to take a listen to this and uh, I hope that you guys get a little something out of it because it really is something that is important to me. So here we go. Patrick Spence Thomas reading A Child's Christmas in Wales. I'm Patrick Spence Thomas and it's Christmas time in the year 2006 and the next piece is A Child's Christmas in Wales written by Dylan Thomas. Dylan Thomas was a Welsh poet, lived on the South Wales coast, and he was an English Welshman. In other words, he spoke no Welsh, to my knowledge, but wrote in English and expressed in his poetry and his writing some of the lovely feelings in the country of Wales. My wife Mary and I went to visit his grave in a little town called Larne, had a lovely lunch there, saw his house, saw where he wrote this. And this was, in fact, originally broadcast by the BBC. I'm not sure what year, but it's a lovely piece, a piece that I have enjoyed all my life, I think. And it sort of takes me back to that lovely countryside in Wales. A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. One Christmas was so much like another in those years around the sea town corner now, and out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep, that I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was twelve, or whether it snowed for twelve days and twelve nights when I was six. All the Christmases rolled down towards the two-tongued sea, like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street, and they stop at the rim of the ice-edged, fish-freezing waves, and I plunge my hands in the snow and bring out whatever I can find. In goes my hand into that wool-white, bell-tongued ball of holidays, resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea, and out come Mrs. Prothero and the fireman. It was on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve, and I was in Mrs. Prothero's garden waiting for cats with her son Jim. It was snowing. It was always snowing at Christmas. December in my memory is white as Lapland, though there were no reindeers. But there were cats, patient, 
cold and callous, our hands wrapped in socks, we waited to snowball the cats. Sleek and long as jaguars and horrible whiskered, spitting and snarling, they would slink and sidle over the white back garden walls, and the lynx-eyed hunters, Jim and I, fur-capped and moccasin trappers from Hudson's Bay, off Mumble's Road, would hurl our deadliest snowballs at the green of their eyes. The wise cats never appeared. We were so still, Eskimo-footed Arctic marksmen in the muffling silence of the eternal snows, eternal ever since Wednesday, that we never heard Mrs. Prothero's first cry from her igloo at the bottom of the garden, or if we heard it at all, it was to us like the far-off challenge of our enemy and prey, the neighbour's polar cat. But soon the voice grew louder. Fire! cried Mrs. Prothero, and she beat the dinner gong. And we ran down the garden with the snowballs in our arms toward the house, and smoke indeed was pouring out of the dining room, and the gong was bombulating, and Mrs. Prothero was announcing ruin like a town crier in Pompeii. This was better than all the cats in Wales standing on the wall in a row. We bounded into the house laden with snowballs and stopped at the open door of the smoke-filled room. Something was burning all right. Perhaps it was Mr. Prothero, who always slept there after midday dinner with a newspaper over his face. But he was standing in the middle of the room saying, A fine Christmas, and smacking at the smoke with a slipper. Call the fire brigade, cried Mrs. Prothero as she beat the gong. They won't be here, said Mr. Prothero. It's Christmas. There was no fire to be seen, only clouds of smoke, and Mr. Prothero standing in the middle of them, waving his slipper as though he were conducting. Do something, he said, and we threw all our snowballs into the smoke. I think we missed Mr. Prothero and ran out of the house to the telephone box. Let's call the police as well, Jim said, and the ambulance. And Ernie Jenkins, he likes fires. But we only called the fire brigade, and soon the fire engine came, and three tall men in helmets brought a hose into the house, and Mr. Prothero got out just in time before they turned it on. Nobody could have had a noisier Christmas Eve. And when the fireman turned off the hose and was standing in the wet, smoky room, Jim's aunt, Miss Prothero, came downstairs and peered in at them. Jim and I waited very quietly to hear what she would say to them. She said the right thing, always. She looked at the three tall firemen in their shining helmets, standing among smoke and cinders and dissolving snowballs, and she said, Would you like anything to read? Years and years ago, when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales and birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in damp front farmhouse parlours, and we chased with the jawbones of deacons, the English and the bears, before the motor-car, before the wheel, before the duchess-faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback, it snowed and it snowed. But here a small boy says, it snowed last year, too. I made a snowman, and my brother knocked it down, and I knocked my brother down, and, and then we had tea. 
But that was not the same snow, I say. Our snow was not only shaken from whitewash buckets down the sky, it came shawling out of the ground and swam and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses like a pure and grandfather moss, minutely ivied the walls and settled on the postman opening the gate like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white, torn Christmas cards. Were there postmen then, too? With sprinkling eyes and wind-cherried noses, on spread, frozen feet, they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully. But all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. You mean that the postman went rat-a-tat-tat and the doors rang? I mean that the bells the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells, too, inside them. No, 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 in the bat-black snow-white belfries tugged by bishops and storks, and they rang their tidings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice-cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window, and the weathercocks crew for Christmas on our fence. Get back to the postman. They were just ordinary postmen, fond of walking and dogs and Christmas and the snow. They knocked on the doors with blue knuckles. Ours has got a black knocker. And then they stood on the white welcome mat in the little drifted porches and huffed and puffed, making ghosts with their breath and jogged from foot to foot like small boys wanting to go out. And then the presents... And then the presents after the Christmas box, and the cold postman, with a rose on his button nose, tingled down the tea-tray-slithered run of the chilly, glinting hill. He went in his ice-bound boots like a man on fishmonger slabs. He wagged his bag like a frozen camel's hump, dizzily turned the corner on one foot, and by God he was gone. Get back to the presents. There were the useful presents engulfing mufflers of the old coach days and mittens made for giant sloths, zebra scarfs of a substance like silky gum that could be tug-a-ward down to the galoshes, blinding tam-o'-shanters like patchwork tea-cosies and bunny-suited busbies and balaclavas for victims of head-shrinking tribes. From aunts who always wore wool next to the skin, there were moustached and rasping vests that made you wonder why the aunts had any skin left at all. And once I had a little crocheted nose-bag from an aunt now, alas, no longer whinnying with us. And pictureless books in which small boys, though warned with quotations not to, would skate on Farmer Giles's pond and did and drowned and books that told me everything about the wasp, except why. Go on to the useless presents. Bags of moist and many-coloured jelly babies, and a folded flag, and a false nose, and a tram conductor's cap, and a machine that punched tickets and rang a bell. Never a catapult. Once by mistake that no one could explain a small hatchet, and a cellular duck that made, when you pressed it, a most unduck-like sound a mewing moo that an ambitious cat might make who wished to be a cow, and a painting book in which I could make the grass, the trees, the seas, and the animals any colour I pleased, 
and still the dazzling sky-blue sheep are grazing in the red field under the rainbow build and pea-green birds. Hard-boileds, toffee, fudge and all sorts, crunches, cracknels, humbugs, glaciers, marzipan and butter Welsh for the Welsh. And troops of bright tin soldiers who, if they could not fight, could always run. And snakes and families and happy ladders and easy hobby games for little engineers complete with instructions. Oh, easy for Leonardo. And a whistle to make the dogs bark, to wake up the old man next door, to make him beat on the wall with his stick, to shake our pictures off the wall. And a packet of cigarettes. You put one in your mouth and you stood at the corner of the street and you waited for hours in vain for an old lady to scold you for smoking a cigarette. And then with a smirk, you ate it. And then it was breakfast under the balloons. Were there uncles like at our house? There are always uncles at Christmas. The same uncles. And on Christmas morning, with dog-disturbing whistle and sugar fags, I would scar the Swatch town for the news of the little world and find always a dead bird by the white post office or by the deserted swings. Perhaps a robin or but one of his fires out. Men and women wading or scooping back from chapel with taproom noses and wind-bust cheeks, all albinos, huddled their stiff black jarring feathers against the irreligious snow. Mistletoe hung from the gas brackets and all the front parlours. There was sherry and walnuts and bottled beer and crackers by the dessert spoons and cats in their fur abouts watched the fires and the high-heaped fire spat, all ready for the chestnuts and the mulling pokers. Some few large men sat in the front parlours, without their collars, uncles, almost certainly, trying their new cigars, holding them out judiciously at arm's length, returning them to their mouths, coughing, then holding them out again, as though waiting for the explosion. And some few small aunts, not wanted in the kitchen, or anywhere else for that matter, sat on the edge of their chairs, poised and brittle, afraid to break like faded cups and saucers. Not many of those mornings trod the piling streets. An old man, always fawn-bowled, yellow-gloved, and at this time of year with spats of snow, would take his constitutional to the white bowling green and back, as he would take it wet or fine, on Christmas Day or Doomsday. Sometimes two hale young men with big pipes blazing, no overcoats, and wind-blown scarves would trudge unspeaking down to the forlorn sea to work up an appetite, to blow away the fumes, who knows, to walk into the waves until nothing of them was left but the two curling smoke clouds of their inextinguishable briars. Then I will be slap-dashing home, the gravy smell of the dinners of others, the bird smell, the brandy, the pudding and mince, calling up to my nostrils. When out of a snow-clogged side lane would come a boy, the spit of myself, with a pink-tipped cigarette and the violet past of a black eye, cocky as a bullfinch, leering all to himself. I hated him on sight and sound, and would be about to put my dog whistle to my lips and blow him off the face of Christmas, when suddenly he, with a violet wink, put his whistle to his lips and blew so stridently, so high, so exquisitely loud, 
the gobbling faces, their cheeks bulged with goose, would press against their tinseled windows the whole length of the white, echoing street. For dinner we had turkey and blazing pudding, and after dinner the uncles sat in front of the fire, loosened all buttons, put their large, moist hands over their watch-chains, groaned a little, and slept. Mothers, aunts and sisters scuttled to and fro, bearing tureens. Auntie Bessie, who had already been frightened twice by a clockwork mouse, whimpered at the sideboard and had some elderberry wine. The dog was sick. Auntie Dosie had to have three aspirins, but Auntie Hannah, who liked port, stood in the middle of the snowbound backyard singing like a big bosom thrush. I would blow up balloons to see how big they would blow up to, and when they burst, which they all did, the uncles jumped and rumbled. In the rich and heavy afternoon, the uncles breathing like dolphins and the snow descending, I would sit among festoons and Chinese lanterns and nibble dates and try to make a model man of war following the instructions for little engineers and produce what might be mistaken for a sea-going tram-car. Or I would go out, my bright new boots squeaking into the white world, onto the seaward hill to call on Jim and Dan and Jack and to pad through the still streets, leaving huge deep footprints on the hidden pavements. I bet people will think there's been hippos. What would you do if you saw a hippo coming down our street? I'd go like this, bang! I'd throw him over the railings and roll him down the hill, and then I'd tickle him under the ear, and he'd wag his tail. What would you do if you saw two hippos? Iron flanked and bellowing, he hippos clanked and battered through the scudding snow towards us as we passed Mr. Daniel's house. Let's post Mr. Daniel a snowball through his letterbox. Let's write things in the snow. Let's write, Mr. Daniel looks like a spaniel all over his lawn. Or we walked on the white shore. Can the fishes see it snowing? The silent, one-clouded heavens drifted onto the sea. Now we were snow-blind travellers lost in the north hills, and vast, dew-lapped dogs with flasks round their necks ambled and shambled up to us, baying excelsior. We returned home through the poor streets where only a few children fumbled with bare red fingers in the wheel-rutted snow and cat-called after us, their voices fading away as we trudged uphill into the cries of the dock birds and the hooting of ships out in the whirling bay. And then, at tea, the recovered uncles would be jolly and the ice-cake loomed in the centre of the table like a marble grave. Auntie Hannah laced her tea with rum because it was only once a year. Bring out the tall tales now that we told by the fire as the gaslight bubbled like a diver. Ghosts wooed like owls in the long night when I dared not look over my shoulder. Animals lurked in the cubbyhole under the stairs where the gas meter ticked. And I remember that we went singing carols once when there wasn't a shaving of a moon to light the flying streets. At the end of a long road was a drive that led to a large house, and we stumbled up the darkness of the drive that night, each one of us afraid, each one holding a stone in his hand in case, and all of us too brave to say a word. The wind through the trees made noises as of old and unpleasant and maybe web-footed men wheezing in caves.
we reached the black bulk of the house. What shall we give them? Hark the herald? No, Jack said. Good King Wenceslas. I'll count three. One, two, three. And we began to sing, our voices high and seemingly distant in the snow-felted darkness around the house that was occupied by nobody we knew. We stood close together near the dark door. Good King Wenceslas last looked out on the Feast of Stephen. And then a small, dry voice, like the voice of someone who has not spoken for a long time, joined our singing, a small, dry, eggshell voice from the other side of the door, a small, dry voice through the keyhole. And when we stopped running, we were outside our house. The front room was lovely. Balloons floated under the hot water bottle, gulping gas. Everything was good again and shone over the town. Perhaps it was a ghost, Jim said. Perhaps it was trolls, Dan said, who was always reading. Let's go in and see if there's any jelly left, Jack said. And we did that. Always on Christmas night there was music. An uncle played the fiddle, a cousin sang Cherry Ripe, and another uncle sang Drake's Drum. It was very warm in the little house. Auntie Hannah, who had got onto the parsnip wine, sang a song about bleeding hearts and death, and then another in which she said her heart was like a bird's nest. And then everybody laughed again. And then I went to bed. Looking through my bedroom window, out into the moonlight, and the unending smoke-coloured snow, I could see the lights in the windows of all the other houses on our hill, and hear the music rising from them up the long, steadily falling night. I turned the gas down, I got into bed, I said some words to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept. listening to Tone Feathers. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.